It's 836, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Full show today. Coming up at 11.05, we're going to be interviewing the brother of a man who was killed in what became one of the most notorious cold case files. By cold case, meaning a, a murder. The murder actually happened um, in 1980, and it, it took authorities ultimately the better part of 30-some-odd years to solve it. But it, it was solved through DNA technology. There's a new documentary on A&E that's going to be coming out later on this week. And we're going to be joined by the, the brother of one of the murder victims. And just it, it's a case that I, I remember back when it happened. And it's just it's a tragic story, but it shows how persistence and technology and law enforcement can ultimately bring people to justice. That's going to be coming up at 11.05 uh, during the 9 o'clock hour. We've got a story involving a very difficult decision for a DA and an elderly driver. And want to revisit something that they talked about on Scafidi and Billstat yesterday. Our friends at the WIAA. Always wrong, often wrong, never in doubt, though. We will discuss all that. But we start off the program today like we start off every program with three big things. Things I think that you need to know to discuss at the water cooler, the coffee closet, at lunch, at the gym, whatever. So as I was telling Jean and Jane and Doug, last night I am minding my own business. I am sitting in the sunroom of my house. I am playing with my little dog. The fireplace is on. I am just watching mindless TV. And I I get an email from our, our director of digital services, Dan. And it says, Rachel Matt, breaking news. Rachel Maddow has Donald Trump's tax returns. Big, huge, it's going to be a big, huge story. This is, it's at 8 o'clock our time. Now, I don't think I have watched more than five minutes of Rachel Maddow in the nine years that she has been on. My late wife, who was a lefty, could not stand Rachel Maddow. She, I mean, she, she would not watch Rachel Maddow, be, and even though you know her politics were along the line, because she just thought that she was just dreadful and just kind of out there. But all right. All right, you do what I do for a living. This is this big story. Donald Trump's tax returns. What what do you what do you have? So against my better judgment, I scroll on the screen, I find where MSNBC is. I tune into NBC and there I, I tune in about five minutes beforehand and they've got this big box saying, Oh, bit this big exclusive story. Rachel Maddow has Donald Trump's tax returns. Okay, so I, I was searching on the internet and I had an idea that this wasn't really I don't know. They said they had the 2005 tax return, the cover sheet for the tax returns. But, okay, I, I want to see exactly what this is. And if you're a regular listener of this program, you know that I I have believed all along that I, I think Donald Trump should disclose his tax returns. I figure that this this thing that he's talked about, about how he's under audit, that's not that's not a justification. It, if, if he wanted to disclose them, that doesn't stop him from doing it. What I have always figured is that – he makes a lot of money, but probably pays very little in taxes because of deductions or whatever. That, that's that's what I think is going on. But but you know who knows? Haven't seen the tax returns. So eight o'clock rolls around, and there is Rachel Maddow, breathless. We've got this. We've got this exclusive. Here it is, and I, I'm waiting for them to disclose the tax return. What she does, if you did not watch this, is she goes into literally a twenty minute. Rant. And, and I mean rant. This, this was, you went, we went down every lefty rabbit hole imaginable. She starts talking about, okay, there's no, this is no president since Nixon has not disclosed their, their tax returns. We think it's important. There's this five minute bit on 
is there's this Russian oligarch that Donald Trump did business with. Um, then there's this big rant about, well, and you know, he's fired the U.S. attorneys, which, of course, is what every president does. But in, in this left-wing fever dream, and what Donald Trump does, it's different. And, and just going on and on. And then, well, it's not illegal for us, even though these tax returns are confidential. It's not ill. We have an absolute right under the First Amendment to make them public, despite the fact that, you know, somebody obviously probably stole them or whatever. So it's this long rant and still no tax returns. So we're 20 minutes into the show, no tax returns. They take a break. All right, against my better judgment, I stick around. They come back after the break, and they've got the guy that got the tax returns, uh, a, a writer who says that they came over the transom. He, in other words, he, he just he got him in the mail. So he doesn't know where they came from. He, he got him in the mail. Then he goes on this weird rant, talking for five minutes about how it's possible that Donald Trump himself might have sent him these tax returns. No evidence of all this, but it's possible that Donald Trump might have sold, sent him these tax returns. So now we're, we're 25 minutes into the show, and they still have not made the tax returns available. They haven't talked about this. So so there is now, then we finally get to the point that there is the, the big disclosure. They've got the two-page cover sheet, the first two pages of the 2005 tax return. Now, actually, this tax return well, I don't know that it's been public. It's been out because back in 2005, there were some questions about some deductions he took on a property in Florida. So this might have been disseminated more widely because of that. But I, I'm expecting that after all this buildup and going down the rabbit hole and talking about Russian oligarchs and you know the need to disclose this stuff because, well, there might be all these business ties, etc., I'm thinking... There is a smoking gun here. And then, of course, you've got the guy that got it. He's talking about how, well, my, my goodness, Trump could have given us this. You know, who, who knows? I have no evidence of that, but this is it. So what, what, what do the numbers show? Okay, 2005, he made about $150 million, lot of money. He paid, well, roughly $35 million in, in actual income tax, and another few, another few million in unemployed, in uh, payroll taxes. But he paid 130, uh, he paid 38 million on 150 million dollars in income. Now, 150 million dollars in income is, is a lot of income. So he's made a lot of money. But it, it's not like he didn't pay taxes. <laughs> but the man paid, you know, 30, again, 38 million total. Some of that was payroll tax, but he, he paid a higher marginal rate than, well, for example, Comcast and MSNBC, that, that owns MSNBC paid. So I, I'm, I'm watching this, and whatever you think about whether or not Trump should disclose the rest of his taxes, this struck me as being a complete and total nothing burger. The guy made a lot of money in 2005. He paid a lot of taxes. All right, no more no less, I think Rachel Maddow beclowned herself yesterday. Let's open up the phone lines. Big story number one, 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. What is your take on the disclosure that Donald Trump, we've got one year of his tax returns, $150 million in income, $38 million in in taxes. <laughs> All right, is, is there a there there? Is there a story there? 
No evidence of Russian oligarch influence. It's He made a lot of money. He paid a lot of taxes. Is this the breathless stop the press's story that we were perhaps led to believe? And related to that, related to that, does anybody have any concerns about media outlets that while you it is not illegal to do what they did, they obtained they obtained records, confidential tax records, which may well have been illegally provided, unless you go down the rabbit hole and believe that Donald Trump sent them to this guy himself. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Your reaction to the disclosure that in 2005, he made $150 million and paid $38 million in taxes. We discuss next. If you're on the line, hold on. It's 844, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 848, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. For what it's worth, the, the, the social media, internet, and critics, brutal on the way Rachel Maddow handed this. The, the headlines are things like, Rachel Maddow turned a scoop on Donald Trump's taxes into a cynical, self-defeating spectacle. Op-ed. Donald Trump just got a nice victory, thanks of all people, to Rachel Maddow. Yeah, they have 2005 tax returns that after 25 minutes last night, they release them and they show Trump in 2005, $150 million in income, $38 million in taxes, which is a lot of income, but that's a lot of of taxes. Donna in Hales Corners. Donna, you're first. Good morning. Hey, uh, one, I'm not a Rachel Maddow fan um, at all, but also, you know, it's that was 2005. Right. Trump went through uh, a bad business time. I mean, he almost lost a lot of money during that time. You know, he, he's probably got a lot of hidden things. Let him pop up his last few uh, income tax returns. He doesn't have to do them all, but what is he hiding from, you know, 2014, 15, 16? I mean, come on. It's, it's a no-brainer. You know, if he's not hiding anything, clock him up. Well, but I mean, and, and look, and I... I I don't disagree with you that I, I mean, every president since Nixon has has done this. Every vice president has done it as well. But I guess why do you automatically assume that he's necessarily hiding something? Is it possible that just he doesn't, I mean, I don't, I don't know, Donna, I don't, I wouldn't want people looking at my tax returns necessarily, and I'm not really hiding anything. It's just, I kind of think that maybe it's nobody's business. And, and you know what? I'm the same way. Absolutely. It's nobody's business, but presidents with that. And, you know, this is how the country was run. And for someone who was as nasty and mean and foul-mouthed and, and just ugh, the way he ran his campaign, to not cough these up, it's almost like he's guilty just by not doing it. But, and uh, that's not fair. Right. I, see, because, I mean, part of the thing, too, is that obviously, I mean, he had not, re- he had not released his, his tax records during the campaign. And that was, that was an issue. I mean, commentators made it an issue. Hillary Clinton made it an issue. Yeah. And he ended up winning. So I, I guess, does that say that the, and, and I'm not disagreeing with you. I think it would be good for him to disclose these things because it puts right. us at bed. But, but still, right. he won. I think he won despite the taxes. I don't think it had anything to do with the taxes right. at all is the reason why he won. And I think also that um, if, if he's basically, if he's not hiding anything, then don't hide it. You know, it's that simple. If he wants to start, you know, making amends with the American people, which he has a lot of mending to do, then he ought to do something. And it, it's like what they say sometimes is that it's, it's one of those avoiding, avoiding catastrophe type moves that he makes. You know, let's redirect 
you know, okay, I'll let this out. Now people are going to get off my back about, you know. Right. The, kind of misdirect. I mean, that's, I mean that, if, if you want to go down the rabbit hole, that, that, is, that is the conspiracy theory that this, this is the year. I mean, I, again, I'm not going down this rabbit hole, but if you want to go down the rabbit hole, it would be, okay, this is the year out of the last 20 that he paid a boatload of taxes. Let's leak this so people look at it and see the, the numbers are there. Um, I mean, but the problem, Don, is if you think releasing the tax returns is going to make criticism go away, uh, with all due respect, make sure you duck, you know, you roll your shoulder when you fall off the turnip truck, because it's not. I mean, I was listening to this thing last night, and you have this this lefty reporter who got the tax returns, and he's sitting there, and he's saying, well, you know, here, th- th- there's nothing in these, at least in these forms, that would be controversial, other than he's saying, well... You know, one of the reasons he paid $38 million was because of the, you know, alternative minimum tax, which a lot of people, myself included, just hate. And he's like, well, it's, you know, Trump has been in favor of modifying or eliminating the alternative minimum tax. And if he had done that, he would have paid a, a lot less money. So I, I just this idea that if he discloses more tax returns, the criticism is going to go away, I, I think is naive. Dell in West Dallas. Dell, you're on 620 WTMJ. Hello. Um, I I guess I agree with pretty much everything that's been said, and it doesn't surprise me, except for the fact that I don't know. I don't understand what they really uncovered. I mean, you paid almost. He paid almost a third of his income yeah. in taxes. I mean, that thirty-eight million dollars. It's a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, right. That's why, and I guess with all the buildup and that this this twenty-minute thing about Russian oligarchs, I thought, my God, there's going to be something here, and it, it it's actually. I mean, they only have the top two pages, so you don't see the schedules and all. But, but I think the gen- in general, generally speaking, American people say 150 million dollars. He made a lot of money, but he paid 38 million. That includes payroll taxes. That's that's you paid a lot of money. That's I, I, there, there's certainly no there there on on at least the 2005 returns. Yeah, no, yeah. Thank, I, I, thanks. Yeah. I mean, and again, I, I here here's what I I think, maybe, and maybe Congress needs to answer this question. You know, if if we think. If we collectively think, the American people, that it is important for candidates for public office to be required to disclose their tax returns, then we should pass a law to that effect that says, okay, if you're the major, oh, and you can and you can decide how, does it apply to anybody who runs for office, has to do it, and what offices, I mean, you could pass that law to that effect, and you could require it. And I, I do understand the argument of what do you have to hide, but again, the flip side is, I, I, I don't know, it might just be that, hey, I don't want people... I'm going to fill out all the required disclosure forms, and I don't want people poking around into how much I gave to charity because my guess is most of us, even though we don't have anything to hide, wouldn't necessarily wouldn't forget necessarily wouldn't like to see our tax returns on the you know front page of the Drudge Report. Jeff in Oak Creek, Jeff, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, yes, I think that uh, I actually think he leaked them, and, I, and I'll tell you why. Whether they're they're real or not, it's because there was a lot of heat for him to disclose them. You know, one of the well, I, well, I don't think there's any question. This, this is it's real. I mean, these two thousand. Right. This is this is real. I think the White House acknowledges that this year is well, real. Yeah. And did they also did, was it the full report? Did it actually show what he paid after his deductions? Uh, yeah, it, it had the well. Yeah, it had the bottom line. It was the first two pages, so it showed sure, tax it, due and owing. It didn't have the schedules that showed how you got to some of the numbers. It's also twelve years old. If you right. recall, Mitt Romney re- released one year and he paid fourteen percent. Right. Okay, if Mitt Romney, I want to ask you this, Jeff. First of all. If you're running for president, don't you think it's uh, – you're not running for president. I understand you not wanting people to see your taxes. It's different if someone's running for president. Mm-hmm. I think you have to agree with that. 
Uh, definitely, yeah. or, or any, or, or Senate, or Congress, right. or whatever. Yeah, I know. Exactly. I think it's different. If you want to be, if you want to, I think it's different. Yeah. The other thing is, Mitt Romney released his. The year he released it, he paid fourteen percent. Fourteen percent. A lot of people, myself included, pay a heck of a lot percentage more than that. A lot of about of us think it's wrong that people who live off their income, who live off their dividends, and don't mm-hmm. actually work for a living, could only pay fourteen percent, while other people are paying twenty eight to thirty five percent, have very little deductions, and make. Twelve bucks an hour, or whatever. Well, and I think, Jeff, and I think that's a legitimate point. Now, at least two thousand five, Trump paid about twenty, twenty five percent. Just to give you an idea, Obama paid nineteen percent. Bernie Sanders paid thirteen percent. So I, you know, it's just, I, I and if if you're asking me, do I think it would be a good idea for the president to release his tax returns? Yes, I have been saying that since the beginning. Um, but all I'm telling you is at least this, this tax return and this one, I think, like I say, it might've been floating out around because there was, there was controversy about this because of deductions he claimed in Florida back in 2005. But at least as far as 2005 goes, this tax return, I think the story is a complete and total nothing burger. And the big loser of the day is, is Rachel Maddow. It's 856, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. I'm Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 9.08. Okay, James, before you leave, before you leave the WTMJ 24-hour newsroom. Right? Yes. And before we get to big thing number two, I want to share, this is this is one of my kind of ick stories of the day. And I want to share this with you and, and see what your reaction is, okay? okay. Mm-hmm. Headline, deadly cobra on the loose in central Florida. Yeah, you're, the search continues for a deadly cobra that escaped from an enclosure at the home of its owner in Ocala, Florida, said the Florida wildlife people. The owner called the commission late Monday to let officials know that his two-foot-long cobra had escaped. Um, They then alerted nearby residents. The snake's owner has been licensed to have the cobra since May of 2016. Um, He also owns a viper, two different types of viper. The law requires the rooms where venomous reptiles are kept to be escape-proof. Obviously, that was not the case. Investigators will be looking into whether the owner violated any regulations. Well, this is an aside. If the law says it has to be escape proof and the cobra has escaped, it seems that's pretty clear. Public safety is our number one concern. We wanted to emphasize that this is a venomous, venomous snake and a dangerous animal and should not be approached. Um, apparently, this cobra is the top tier of all animal venoms. If you are bitten, you need to get to a hospital as fast as you can. The only treatment is the correct anti-venom made from the correlating venom of the species or another within the family. Can you imagine you get bit by this thing? You show up at the emergency room and they're, they're going, well. We don't have um, this. Yeah, we don't uh, have the right yes, anti-venom. Right. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, now they say the good news is, to the extent there's any good news, the cobra is probably going to find a spot, probably going to find a spot far away from people and stay there. So they think the likelihood of anyone being bitten by the snake is very, very low. Tell that to the people that live next door. All right, that story. <laughs> my, my, I'm reading that, and and look, you're an animal lover. I'm an animal lover. Yes. Right, okay. I, but, and is it just me? But why in God's green earth would people be allowed to have venomous reptiles like this in residential neighborhoods? I'm baff. I'm I'm just baffled, <laughs> Jeff. I, I mean, again, I to me. It's not a pet if it doesn't blink. That's, I mean, even goldfish, you know, and I had goldfish as a kid, but I think it's really hard to feel compassionate towards an animal that doesn't blink. And there's something about eyebrows that cats and dogs have and even horses that make them a little bit more human. So I don't understand the, the appeal of reptiles. And I'm sorry, 
all you reptile people. Well, right, but it, but it's not just, and I, I'm with you on that. I mean, I, I don't get the appeal of reptiles, but from a public policy matter, I mean, a, a snake that is incredibly venomous, that if it bites someone, they are going to die. That is just, that. That is what I'm reading sure. into this. If if that can you imagine if you're living in this neighborhood and the, oh, you, the, the police are going door to door and saying, just so you know, um, Hondo down the street was keeping venomous reptiles in a room and sorry, Hondo, and one of them got out and we don't know where the hell this thing is. Have a nice day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. But by the way, if you see it and it bites you, well, you're probably going to die. Get to the hospital ASAP. On <laughs> but that they're one. probably not going to have the right anti-venom if you get there. I think I, I think if, if I'm just trying to picture if, if the if the cops in my neighborhood came to me and banged on the door and gave me that information that's that, that's i'm checking into a hotel on the other side of town until next winter yeah, exactly all right i just i was just wondering thank you i was just wondering if if i was I, I needed some validation of this particular theory and i understand there's people out there that love you love your reptiles you love your snakes you want to keep them around the house and that's that's fine that's fine but when it comes to highly venomous poisonous cobras I don't know. I just don't think there's any reason at all that average people should be allowed to have them in their homes for precisely, precisely this reason. Big thing number two, it's the Goldilocks question out of Madison. Is the porridge too hot? Is it too cold? Or is it just right? The Madison police chief is a guy named Mike Koval. And it's been interesting to me because... Koval is is sort of a lefty, you know, in law by, by law enforcement standards, he, he's he's very much a lefty. But he has come under fire out in Madison because even though he's a bit of a lefty, he's still in law enforcement, and that means that you have a certain segment of the community in Madison who is just plain anti-police. They they don't like law enforcement. They you've had some crazies that are there saying we just don't even want the police in our neighborhood. Well, try that for two weeks and see how it works out. And I think you are perhaps aware of the high-profile situation involving Tony Robinson. He was the 19-year-old man who was shot in March of 2015 in the stairwell by a highly decorated police officer named Matt Kenny. Um, Robinson was high on whatever, was running down a stairwell. The allegations are that he attacked the officer who was responding to this call. The officer shot him. Um, the officer was completely cleared, no criminal charges issued, no violations of procedure. In a very controversial decision, the insurance firm that represents Mad- the Madison city, city of Madison decided to pay out $3.35 million to the family of Robinson and the attorneys. And that, that has a lot of people, I think, legitimately outraged. All right, well, he- here's another aspect of that story. Last June, the police chief... And and the family of Tony Robinson had been very, very aggressive. They had taken their case to the media, very, very public in criticizing the police. So last June, the Madison police chief is testifying at, at a hearing, you know, before the Fire and Police Commission. And he goes to leave the hearing. And what happens is a couple relatives of Tony Robinson, including his grandmother, and and They'd had interactions with the chief before, but they follow him as he's leaving the meeting and they're yelling things at him and he's he's walking away. 
And apparently what, what happens is he, he stops and he's talking to some other people. And so these relatives of Robinson come up and they are apparently trying to, well, euphemistically join in the conversation. But, you know, they're, they're kind of yelling at him. They're criticizing him for things he said. So the police chief just he wants to walk away. He, he just he wants to walk away from this. He walks into a stairwell. And the grandmother follows him into the stairwell, continuing to try to talk to him. You know, she, so she's, she's trailing him, yelling at him, essentially. The police chief goes down the stairs, and then somebody says, well, you know, maybe, maybe, lady, you should make an appointment to talk with the police chief. And then the police chief says, that is, essentially, that's not going to happen. This woman's a raging lunatic, and he walks off. So that, that's that's the circumstance behind this. The the grandmother is following him. She's yelling at him. Um, she chases him into a stairwell. He's walking away. Somebody says, "Hey, you know, you you know, maybe you should just make an appointment to go see him." And the chief says, "Again, that's not going to happen. She's a raging lunatic." All right. The grandmother files a complaint with the fire and police commission, saying he called me a raging lunatic. This is outrageous. He needs to be disciplined. The Fire and Police Commission has a hearing on this, and they ask the police chief, and the police chief says, well, I'm sorry I I called her a a raging lunatic, but I I just, I was at my wit's end on this. So there's a hearing. The Fire and Police Commission says, well, we, we, we agree that the chief engaged in misconduct by calling her a raging lunatic, but we don't think it, it merits anything. Our, our only options are suspension, demotion, or disqualification, and we're not going to do any of those. And predictably, the family is not happy. All right, big thing number two, this is the Goldilocks question. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Did the chief do anything wrong? And if he did, was the punishment too harsh, too lenient, or they just acknowledge it was misconduct but said nothing's going to happen. Is that the right way to handle this? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We're back to discuss next. It's 917. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 920, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. The Brewers continue Cactus League play against the Arizona Diamondbacks tomorrow. Mr. Baseball Bob Euchre and Jeff Levering have the call. Our coverage starts at 255 tomorrow, sponsored by your local Chevy dealers. All right, 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The Madison Police Chief um, was found to be guilty of misconduct yesterday because... Family members of somebody who was shot and killed by a police officer in a shooting that was ultimately determined to be justified were stalking him, following him at a public appearance, chased him down a stairwell, trying to get a conversation. And at one point in time, he apparently says, this woman's a raging lunatic. She's not getting an appointment with me. And that was the basis for a misconduct claim. Some people think the Madison police chief should be fired. The Fire and Police Commission says, well, he shouldn't have said that. I guess that's misconduct, but we're not going to do anything. Um, Eric and Racine writes, are the police no longer allowed to speak for themselves or defend themselves in any manner without somebody getting upset? I don't fault the chief for calling the lady a raging lunatic. I would have done the exact same thing. I think the commission was correct and uh, and not punishing him and not punishing him, but agreeing that maybe he should have used 
better judgment. Um, Raquel says, the decision with the chief was too lenient. I would like to think progressive discipline should be used in all types of employment, especially in this situation, should have gotten a suspension. 414-799-1620. My question would be, should have gotten a suspension for what? I, I mean, look, if we've really gotten to the point, are people so terribly sensitive and thin-skinned that the guy is being followed down a stairwell by an obviously irate family member who's been very, very public about not liking how the police handled a tragic situation involving the loss of her grandson. I I get that. But the police chief who's being stalked by this woman says, I consider her to be a raging lunatic. No, she's not getting in there. I mean, is can you really not say that? Is that really at the point where you have misconduct of the cops have to take this type of stuff? So I will tell you, at least in my opinion, uh, I, I don't know about the misconduct finding, but discipline, suspending him, firing him? Really? Mike in Muskego. Mike, you're on 620 WTMJ. Hey, you hit it on the head. Thin skin, I think she was being more vindictive. You know, someone said, hey, do this to try to rile him up a little more. Right. Uh, what he did is really nothing. I mean, we all lose our tempers. I mean, and we sure. apologize afterwards. And, sure. and it's man up time. Uh, he did his apology. I just think it's wrong that they want to take it that step farther, you know, always going for that person's job, and it's just not right. But, well, well, right, yeah. right. You, you know, you hit it on a big thing, Mike. The, the guy is the guy is human, okay? He, he's And I, I understand that if you're a chief of police, you know, you're held to perhaps a, a higher standard than just a general member of the public. But, I mean, I'm trying to picture the situation. You've just come out of this hearing. You've got angry family members that are following you. The woman trails him into a stairwell, continuing to try to engage him as he's trying to walk away. And then he he just he just says, "No, I, this is this woman is a raging lunatic. I just you know get away." I, and, and that's to me that's somebody's going to say that that's misconduct. I mean, really? <laughs> never, never. And I agree. Like I said, you you hit it right on the head when you said people are getting too thin skinned and just finding reasons. And to me, I think that's wrong. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, right. And I understand this. This is I understand this is Madison. But I mean, I think I don't care whether it's Madison or Milwaukee. I think, you know, if Ed Flynn get, is drawn into a verbal confrontation or Ed Flynn is somewhere and he's walking away and and he loses his temper and doesn't act out physically, but just says, I'm not having a meeting. This pe- this person's crazy. That that's now going to be something that at least some people are going to, you know, ask you know, ask for him being fired. You know, I have an interesting text in the line saying, I wonder how many, how many names have, have members of the family or supporters of Tony Robinson, how many names have they called the chief over the course of the last two years? That's, that's kind of a, a fair question. Mike and Fond du Lac writes on our text line, I think the Madison police chief was ill advised to make the comment. And by the way, I, I, I don't disagree. Just you kind of walk away. Um, I don't, he writes, I don't know if it was misconduct or not, but I think the commission reviewed it to cover their own butts. The man is a human being, and sometimes we have to understand that people say things they wish they hadn't. I don't think they should have done anything about it other than comment that it was, you know, in, inappropriate. So I guess this underlines to me the frustration, again, of being a police officer. And, and the chief tries to he, hear what was really key to me. He's trying to walk away. He, it's not like sometimes you have situations where the public figure turns around and escalates the confrontation. And and then you always want to say, walk away, walk away. Here, the guy is walking away. He's in a stairwell. He's trying to get out of the situation, and he's being followed and continually badgered, and he says something. Should he have said it? 
Probably not. But but really, you're going to try to fire him. This falls into the category of Wagner's rule of life, number one. Life is tough. Get a helmet. And if you don't want to be told that you're acting like a raging lunatic, well, okay, maybe don't act like a raging lunatic. Just saying. 925, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 928, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, coming up in less than 10 minutes, Dolly Walks. I'll tell you about that story. Big thing number three, the outgoing U.S. attorney from the Northern District of Illinois. That covers Chicago, um, one of the ones that was an Obama appointee. So this is an Obama appointee. Um, he let go by Trump. Um, he, he He's not going quietly, but he's not criticizing Trump. On the way out, and I've got a link to this story up on WTMJ.com, Jeff Wagner's show page and our main page under three big things. He goes after the ACLU. He talks about the the explosion of gun crime, particularly homicides and shootings in the city of Chicago. But you can say that about any urban area around here. And and he lays some of the blame at the feet of the ACLU and various lawsuits that they have filed to make it more difficult for police to do their job. He also, and this is interesting because, again, it's coming from an Obama appointee, calls for federal and local police to flood neighborhoods afflicted with rampant gang crime and and said, look, this this is the only solution. You know, there is an explosion of gun crime in our urban areas. If we are going to make the streets safe, what we need to do is we need to flood the streets with police officers. We need to be incredibly proactive, and we don't need to let the ACLU types who are trying to manufacture issues at the expense of public safety get away with it. And you know what? He's absolutely 100% right. That's what we should be doing in Chicago. It's what we should be doing in New York. It's what we should be doing in Milwaukee, not with the ACLU who has decided to side with the criminals as opposed to law-abiding citizens and threaten lawsuits against proactive policing. So anyways, this issue, it relates to Chicago, but it's also going on in Milwaukee. And you, you want to talk about who the criminals' friends are. It's the ACLU, uh, at least recently. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Speaker Paul Ryan says he has the votes to repeal and replace Obamacare, but some of his fellow Republicans disagree. Scafidi and Billstad examine the numbers and offer their take today at 1235. All right. This is the story of a woman named Thelma Dolly Yashinsky. Um, you have perhaps not heard about this story, but it's very controversial up in the Green Bay area. It actually comes out of out of Ocanto, which is sort of, again, in the Green Bay sort of metropolitan area. Here's what happens. Um, th- October 24th of 2015, Mrs. Yashinsky is driving a car. She is, at the time, either 82 or 83 years old. She's driving the car. In the car with her are her 91-year-old husband, Edward, and two friends of hers, a 96-year-old woman and an 89-year-old woman, and the two women are sisters. So uh, Dolly, Dolly is 82, 83 years old. She's driving, 90-some-year-old husband's in the car with her, and they're two of their friends, one who's 96 and one who is 89, are in the car with them. But Dolly's the one behind the wheel. October 24th of 2015, Dolly, driving northbound on County I near, near Ocanto Falls, where she blows through a stop sign 
at State Highway 22, going at highway speeds. So she just completely and totally misses the stop sign. Doesn't This isn't one where it's slippery roads and you try to brake. She blows through the stop sign going at highway speeds. She plows into a westbound Ford Expedition driven by a 35-year-old Oconto Falls man with four passengers in the Expedition. So Dolly blows the stop sign, doesn't notice it, whatever, goes through the stop sign, highway speeds, slams into the car. Dolly has minor injuries. The three people in the car... The eighty, the ninety-some-year-old woman, her eighty-nine-year-old sister, and Dolly's ninety-something-year-old husband are all killed in this crash. Um, a couple people in the Ford Expedition suffer injuries that aren't life-threatening. So the Dolly's vehicle gets the worst of this. So this happened in October of two thousand fifteen. Earlier this year, the district attorney in Oconto out in Oconto County, um, issues criminal charges against Dolly, who is now 84 years old. Um, the criminal charges, she's charged with homicide, the three deaths, by reckless use of a motor vehicle. She's also charged with causing injury by reckless use of a motor vehicle. That's for the injuries for the people who were in the Ford Expedition. Uh, the attorney representing Dolly goes absolutely nuts when this decision is made. Um, criticizing the district attorney calls it outrageous and cruel to charge her. He says what makes the decision by the Oconto County DA especially disgraceful and heartless is that Dolly is 84 years old and as a result of this accident lost her husband of 61 years as well as her two close friends. Dolly herself was injured in the accident. She has been punished enough. The DA, for his part, defends the charges. He says, look, we can't just draw the line arbitrarily based on somebody's age and the fact that they were injured in an accident, unless for some reason the injury is going to render them incapable of proceeding. But if you have someone who runs a stop sign and kills three people, yes, justice is bringing charges. So the DA does not back down. So here you have, and many people in the community were outraged that he would have charged her. Well, they entered into a plea agreement earlier this week. Um, Dolly apparently gets a deferred sentence, which means if you follow the terms of the agreement, the whole thing goes away. Um, Instead of prosecuting her, she's ordered not to drive a vehicle outside a two-mile radius surrounding her home. So she's still allowed to drive, but just in a two-mile radius. And, again, that, that's essentially what the thing is, um, not drive outside of that. But if you do that, this whole thing goes away. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I admit I find this to be a fascinating story, and I'm curious as to your reaction. Should she have been charged in the first place? Was the lawyer right that it was cruel and outrageous to charge a now 84-year-old woman in connection with this situation where she wasn't drunk she wasn't high she just blew through a stop sign and hit and hit a car killing the three passengers in the car was it is it reasonable to say she suffered enough she's lost her husband she's lost two of her close friends should the da have brought charges and then you know if he should have brought charges is it the right thing to do to dispose of the case by essentially saying okay never mind 
And as long as you only agree to drive a car within a two-mile radius of your home, this stuff is going to go away. Hmm. 414-799-1620 is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We are back to discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. What's justice in a case like this? It's 941, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Forty-four, Jeff Wagner, six twenty, WTMJ, and in the interest of complete completeness, this eighty-four-year-old woman who blows through the stop sign, kills three people in her car, injures other people. The condition of her deferred prosecution agreement was: she not commit a crime for three years, not drive a vehicle outside a two-mile radius from her home, and provide a letter from her physician in one year and two years, stating, stating that there are no medical reasons why she should not drive. All right. The attorney for the woman says it was cruel and outrageous for the DA to charge her in the first place. Is he right? Should she have been charged? And if she should have been charged, should the prosecution have been essentially given away in this fashion? Dave and Appleton. Dave, you're first. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. Yes, she should have been charged. Yes, she should have been found guilty. No, she shouldn't have gone to jail for like the next 10 years or anything like that. But it should be on her permanent, you know, yet short record that she's going to have. My question is, okay, I live within two miles, so now i gotta, <laughs> I got to look out for her on the sidewalk when I live two miles down the road. She should not be allowed to drive. And it worries me even more that an 84-year-old woman who has killed three people and injured other people would even want to drive again. She should be sitting... in guilt-ridden shame, never wanting to get in the car again. Well, you know, well, you know Dave, I... I, I, I think I agree with, with pretty much everything you just said, at least up until that last point. But yeah, I do not think the DA is cruel and unra- outrageous for, for bringing charges. Three people are dead because a lady blows through a stop sign at highway speeds. Two other people are injured. And I, I don't think that there's an, gee, I'm, an 80, I'm 83 years old, that that should be a defense. Now, having said that, do, do you put an 83-year-old woman under these circumstances in prison no, you don't. It's, if she was drunk, I would feel differently, but she wasn't. But but I'm with you. As you are disposing of the case, you, you know, you're, you're, you're going to continue to let her drive. That's the first thing I'm thinking of. What about if you live within two miles of where this woman is? I mean, what happens if she's not paying attention and she blows through some other stop sign, for goodness sakes? Well, and what's the, the liability for the city or the or? the state or whatever, if she does run over two kids in a crosswalk next week, I, I, at the, a mile and a half from her house. Yeah, thanks. I mean, at the, see, I, I, I don't think that you put her in prison under these circumstances. I appreciate that she's she suffered a lot. I do think it's important to get into the court system. And so while I'm not arguing that she goes to prison, this idea that we're going to give her her driver's license back when she's demonstrated that, and again, I'm not suggesting it's necessarily a medical issue. I don't know why the lady blew through the stop sign at highway speeds, but you're going to let her drive? I mean, seriously. Bruce in Green Bay. Bruce, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Um, I am familiar with the case, and, uh, you know, I, I, I agree for her. Uh, yes, her license should be revoked. Uh, I had to do it to my mother. She got yeah. in a car accident. And uh, just as another, you know, it's no, you're 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 dangerous, right? You know, and so and she was fine with that. She agreed upon it. And as far as you know, a two mile radius, no, where is she going to go? And no, they should be revoked. There's family that can pick her up. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, th- that's it. You know, does she belong? Does she belong under these circumstances in prison? No. That, at no, what point does that serve? But I'm with you. But absolutely not. She she die. She die within the first year of a heart attack. But but at the same time, that doesn't mean that I necessarily think it's a good idea that they're going to two miles or not that they're going to turn her back loose on on the roads for goodness sake after having after having done this. That's that's to me the craziest part of this whole thing. That's that's correct. The license should be revoked. I mean, I'm sure her car was total low. So at 82 years old, now she's 84, I know that. And, you know, is she actually going to go buy another car or has she bought another car? You know? Right, right, exactly. And, and again, right, that that's yeah. the thing, right? Now, thanks, Nicole. See, I, I don't think the criticism of the DA was unfair. I think he makes a, a good point. And whenever I, – I, I always open myself up to really, really hostile emails and phone calls whenever we talk about – elderly people driving um and i look i understand hopefully we're all going to be there someday we're all going to live long enough for that but but the truth is i've made this point before i think it is insane absolutely insane in the state of wisconsin that you can renew your license be at you can renew your license you, you go in you pass a vision test and then it's effectively eight years late you don't have to see anybody or do anything um, for another eight years, unless you're involved in some sort of collision or something like that. I just think that's crazy because the, the truth is, when you turn 80, for example, you know, some people, at the, by the age of 88, they're still whip sharp, they're still driving, but your skills deteriorate. It bothers me to admit, but I do not see as well, you know, at my age as I did when I was 29. I, I just don't. That bothers me, okay? But that's just the reality. It is part of the overall aging process. So I have never said that I think people beyond a certain age shouldn't be able to drive cars. I have always argued, though, that there needs to be more scrutiny. There needs to be more testing be of people beyond a certain age. And I don't know what that age is. I don't know if it's 75. I don't know if it's 80. I don't know exactly what that age would be. But I think that there needs to be additional testing just to make sure that you can still turn your head, that you can still hear, that you can still see. Um, because, again, your skills atrophy. Now, is that going to happen? No, because it's such a political hot potato. I mean, you know, I I understand that that's the, the situation here. But um, in this particular case, you know, do you do you put her in prison? No. Um, now, some people are saying, you know, convicted of causing death by a vehicle, automatic license revocation. Well, she wasn't convicted. See, that's the thing. They, they This is a deferred prosecution agreement where they say, all right, you're, you know, if, if you if you don't violate the terms of the agreement, you don't commit another crime in three years, you only drive within two miles of the house, um, we're going to forget about all this. So she's not actually convicted of anything. They just set this whole thing aside. I'm not saying that that's not necessarily justice. I do think it's mind-boggling that you're not taking a license away, and you're even leaving the possibility for somebody to drive two-mile radius or not. Just saying. It is 9.52. Coming up, what happens when you have a bust weather forecast? Do you keep digging the hole, or do you climb out and declare victory? It's 9.51. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 9.54. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Our text line is just exploding with people who actually just, just, just like the lady shouldn't be driving. You know, it, you know the, the lady should not be driving, which seems to me pretty clear. And, and if one of the reasons I get on my soapbox about this this whole situation of older people driving is I understand, believe me, I have been through this, 
with um, you know elderly parents. My mom, who passed away at the age of eighty, she got sick around seventy eight, and she gave up her license. She just knew that she wasn't, she didn't feel comfortable driving, and she just said, "I'm not going to drive the car anymore." And so that was easy. My dad, who passed away at the age of um, eighty five, the last year or so. It, it, we, it was it was a constant battle with my brother and I because you know you'd go over my how you doing dad and he'd say well I, I I'm just terrible I you know I feel awful I just I can't concentrate I can't do this can't do that can't do the other and then I would say okay give me the car keys and at which point he said well no the, the only the only time I the only time I really feel with it is when I'm behind the wheel of a car and it was just now now obviously nothing happened and we you know we, we were able to reach an agreement but it was this huge battle that that we'd have and it was just kind of like well okay you're telling me how sick you are and you you know and, and I would take him to I would you know take him to the doctors and things like that but I understand how tough it is to get people out of cars I understand that feeling of independence um I got my driver's license the day I was 16 when I turned 16 went down took the test and and I I get how it is that it is that feeling and how tough it is to give it up. But I mean, again, I went through it with my father. I feel terrible. I can't see. I can't hear. I can't do all these things. But I'm fine to drive the car. Well, that puts an awful burden on the kids to have to deal with that. And it would be nice to get a little bit of help from the state. All right. It, it, over the last couple of days, you know, we got warmth with snow two days ago. You might have been seeing these reports of huge blizzards on the East Coast. And parts of the East Coast really, really did get whumped. I mean, if, if you look at the northern part of the East Coast, they're, they're talking about, you know, a foot and a half of snow. What happened, though, is that in New York and in D.C., where they were predicting like one to two inches of snow, what ended up happening, one to two feet of snow, what happened is they didn't get anywhere near that much snow. They, they got maybe five or six inches, which is still a big deal. But it wasn't a foot to a foot and a half of snow. And what apparently happened is that the, the, the track shifted a little bit, so they got the same amount of precipitation, but a lot of it fell as rain, not snow. All right, so that's fine. But here's the interesting story. It now turns out that the forecasters knew, knew in advance that their forecast was going to be wrong. They knew that the snow totals that they had been predicting for say New York City, um, was was not going to be correct. They they knew that they had overstated it by like about a foot. They made the conscious decision not to change the forecast, though, um, and and they acknowledged that they decided we we knew the computer models all shifted. We knew on on Monday afternoon that it wasn't going to be anywhere near as bad as we were predicting. So what they say is, out of extreme caution, we decided to stick with the higher amounts. And their justification for this is what they call the the windshield wiper effect, that they say hurts the the public. Um, The idea being that if we downgrade the totals, if we say what we now think it's really going to be, um, we're sending the wrong message because we're going to suggest that the storm is no longer a threat. So in other words, that they're saying that you and me, the general public, we are too stupid to appreciate that there's a difference between two feet of snow and six inches of snow. And if you only tell us there's six inches of snow, well, that we're not going to behave rationally. This is why people do not trust weather forecasts. If you know that the forecast is going to be wrong, if you know that your prediction is wrong 
and you decide to go ahead and continue to put out the wrong prediction. That is like the boy who cries wolf. And when they say next time that there's going to be two feet of snow, to me, that's what really hurts your credibility because you know that they are willing to, then the word is lie. That's it. They're willing to lie to you because they don't think you know how to process the information. My point is, tell me what it is going to be. If it changes, I understand it. It's an unpredictable sort of thing. And if you're telling me it's two feet, all right, and now it's going to be six inches, tell me it's six inches. That's what I want to hear. Trust me to make the decisions. But this, it's actually a huge scandal. They're acknowledging that they did it. They, they say, well, we just, we didn't want to, we didn't want people to relax too much. So we continued to let them believe it was going to be a foot and a half when it was really only going to be six inches. Hmm. Jeff Wright, Okay, so Jane, last hour I talked about my favorite story, which was the, the, the not, in, a, in a weird sort of way, the, the venomous cobra that's gotten, that got loose in Ocala, Florida, and they're going around telling neighbors, Oh, there's a cobra that's loose here. Don't go near it. Yeah, don't, don't right. Just don't go near it if you see it. To which, that point in time, that, that's when the for sale signs goes up on the house for me. And we were talking about why people would allow to, you know, why would you allow to have a, a venomous cobra that if it bites you, the only antidote is if you have, it can immediately administer venom from a similar type of cobra, which I'm sure they have in every emergency room in Ocala, Florida. Who doesn't? All right. Okay, so here, here's my, my second favorite story of the day. And it, it's kind of in the category of how, how life has suddenly gotten complicated. Now, over your long career, long and um, glorious and glamorous career in radio, you've probably attended a series of conferences, right? You ever gone to any? No. No, really? <laughs> okay. I avoid those like the plague. Okay, well... <laughs> But you know you are familiar. There are there are conferences sure. and things like that. Mm-hmm. All right, um, they just held the American Association of Physics Teachers conference. Right. Sure. Now you you go to a conference and there, there's name tags. You know, and you and you you find your your name tag and you you put on your name tag and that's why. So when you're meeting and interacting with people, they can say, "Hey, Jane. Hi. You know, hi, Jeff. Right. Yeah, okay. Right, makes absolutely. sense. Mm-hmm. All right. Well." The American Association of Physics Teachers has encouraged its attendees at its winter summit to not just wear name tags, but also wear pronoun stickers in order to reduce instances of misgendering. So in addition to name tags, I love that look, in addition to name tags, they're they're going to give you stickers with pronouns that you can attach to your name badge, indicating what what pronoun you would like to be addressed by how you identify he she hers he him his they them theirs like you might instead of being called like he or she you might want to be called they okay um z zer zers um each of which includes subjective objective and possessive cases because you know you you wouldn't want to be offended you instead of me calling you she or her, you might want to be referred to as they. So you now have to have a pronoun sticker. Just call me Queen and get it over with. <laughs> That's exactly right. It's, it's like okay, right? There's right. There's a venomous cobra loose in Florida because some idiot had it in his house. And if you go to this American Association of Physics Teachers thing, you've got to pick a pronoun sticker because God forbid. God forbid you should say, hey, I just met her, and her tends out tends to be a he. I mean, you know, I just, it's a, it's a crazy world. It is a crazy world. All right. 
This is the segment of the program I call Dealer's Choice. It's what I consider to be not necessarily the most significant topic of the day, but but certainly one of the most talkable topics of the day. And I want to dovetail on, actually, it was a story that um, Steve Scafidi and Eric Bilstadt had yesterday. And they, uh, when I saw they were going to do it, I thought, this is a really, really talkable topic. And I resisted the urge to do it in advance of them. So they had a discussion. But I, I want to I revisit this. If you want to see the video that I am about to refer to, and it's only about 10 seconds, um, we, we have a link to it up at WTMJ.com. But also, if you, if you use the WTMJ talk and text line, which is 414-799-1620, and you just text us the word WIAA, we have the video that we can that we, we can make available to you, and again, it's it's only about it's only about ten seconds. Now, if you're a regular listener to this program, you know that I am not a fan of the WIAA. I understand that it is difficult to try to manage high school sports and things like that, and I understand it's a thankless job. But I, I have over the years, I have kind of come to the conclusion that the WIAA and the the bureaucrats that administer a lot of the rules. It is the ultimate example of the rules are rules mentality, where little or no common sense is applied to situations. And the idea being, well, if we make an exception for this, then then it's going to open the doors, to which I would say no. Well, anyhow, here, here, here is the story. Um, Appleton North, the girls' basketball team, and we're talking about pronouns. Can you say girls' basketball team nowadays? Can you say boys' basketball and girls' basketball? The Air Force considers the term boys and girls, by the way, to be offensive, and you're not supposed to use that. But at the risk of riling up some people who are politically correct, I continue to refer to the high school kids as girls and boys. Okay, the girls' basketball team. Um, this Division One title. Um, this is up in – they played it um, up in Green Bay. Appleton North won. And what happens is – they have there's like a medal ceremony and all the high school girls are are on the, the stand that's on the court after the game and and they're all getting their, their medals and the, the ceremony is over. What happens then is there's this you know young young woman, um, she's an Appleton North, she's a junior, she's a standout. Her name is Sydney Levy, and what what happens is her her little three year old brother. I mean this is after the ceremony starts running onto the court. And the kids, it, it, the, the ceremony is kind of like in a corner by the basket. So, I mean, it's not like he's running across the length of the court. But he starts, you know, coming out, and he's jumping up and down to see his big sister, and he's got his arms extended. He, he, wants, he wants a hug. And all of a sudden, what happens is one of the people, it's actually the WIAA associate director, her name is Deb Hauser, she jumps between... The high school girl who is coming down to get a hug from her three-year-old brother and the little three-year-old who is jumping up and down, she steps between him, puts out the hand, and kind of turns the kid away. Uh, the, the dad is taking a video of this because he he obviously, you know, th- this is a big moment. It's a family moment. They're, they're trying to record this. So once the, the woman with the WIAA turns the kid away, what happens is... The dad sees this, and they, they post the video saying, WIAA State didn't let Jalen give his sister, Sid, a hug after winning the state. He gets excited to hug her after every game. He cries. 
The WIAA puts out a statement about this. Here's what they say. The Wisconsin Interscholastic Athletic Association acknowledges that the short video clip that was released on social media Sunday may be seen by the casual observer as insensitive. In the celebratory situations following a state championship, it is not possible for the WIAA to know the individual traditions and rituals of all schools, teams, players, and families involved. For the safety of all involved, we keep spectators off the playing surface. As an organization that runs large events on a regular basis, our focus is always on safety and what-if situations that can evolve quickly and cause potential harm to innocent bystanders. When the WIA staff receives advanced requests regarding special family situations or need, we do our best to accommodate if and when possible. The WIA has reached out to the family to express its regrets for any distress they may have experienced. In other words, um, in other words, too bad, you know, so sad. We understand why this video makes us look bad. But at the same time, we don't want people storming the court, and that's why we stopped the little three-year-old boy who was jumping up and down um, from being able to come get his to hug his sister who was coming towards him. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Do you buy what the WIAA is selling? Or is this another situation where a complete lack of judgment is being shown by the adult. I understand that you've got a rule that says, you know, we don't want people storming the court because, all right, we're afraid that bad stuff might happen. I I understand that. But here you have, at the end of a ceremony, it's not during the game, ceremony's over, you've got a little three-year-old who is clearly coming up, jumping up and down and running and excited to see a woman uh, who turns out to be a sister, the girl is starting to come towards him. All right, in situations like this, should maybe the WIAA officials use a little bit of discretion? 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The way I read their explanation, it's, it's we understand that we look insensitive, um, and we're sorry if this caused distress, but rules are rules. 414-799-1620, we discuss next. And again, if you want to see the video and you text us, uh, WIAA at that text line. We will send you the video. 1018, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 1021, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. This is Dealer's Choice Controversy last Saturday night um, up in Green Bay. Appleton North wins the girls high school basketball tournament. The the, uh, the medal ceremony is over. They're the, the, the kids are up on risers. They've all got their medals. And there's a video one of the girls, one of the stars, she's coming down off the riser. Her three-year-old brother, the, the ceremony is essentially over, starts running out on the court um, just in this corner. He's jumping up and down, and the woman from the WIAA jumps in and essentially blocks the kid from getting to his sister. WIAA says, yes, we understand that this looks insensitive and heartless, but we have these rules that are designed to provide safety because we don't want people storming the court. 414-799-1620 is the number. I understand the rules against storming the court. Okay, so I I get all that, but candidly, to me, this is another situation that demonstrates the cluelessness of, of the WIAA when it comes to being able to distinguish, you know, distinguish stuff. Um, just saying. 414-799-1620. Let's see. Kate and Walworth writes, it's insensitive. I understand rules, but it's a three-year-old kid. The WIAA just made themselves look silly. 
Let's talk to, uh, let's see, Sue in Green Bay. Sue, good morning. You're first. Hi. Good Hi, morning. Sue. I have to say I agree with the WIAA. Um, to me, it's a slippery slope. You have rules. You start letting things go. Then you have more problems in the future. I think this, this was just one little kid. But say a whole group of people stormed and the kid was trampled or something. Well, you then know, you stop them. You, then, then you don't let you don't let a whole group of people stop. This is this is right, a, this is a three year old. You have one person that stopped this three year old. So if there's a whole group in that area, one person cannot stop all of them. But let me say, you as an attorney know if something happens to someone in a situation like this, they would sue the WIAA. They would sue the Resch Center. I mean. Uh, rules are rules, and why couldn't this girl just, instead of the kid going on to the court, come over and hug her brother, or wait till a few minutes later? Well, I mean, the the, the brother because the brother was excited. It was the end of the medal. Med, it was the end of the medal ceremony. The place was emptying out, and the parents are right around the court, kind of taking taking pictures of this. I mean, I think that's that was was happening. I think everybody was down there. They're taking pictures, so they're they're close. It was just. The, the little kid wants to just walk out a few feet and see see the daughter. See, I, 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 so I'm, I'm sorry, I just don't agree with you. I, I, I understand the slippery slope argument. I understand that you don't want mobs of fans bum-rushing the court. But still, one of the reasons that, you know, God gave us the common, you know, God gave us more common sense than geese is is to understand sort of situations. And if you look at this video, it is apparent that this is not a threat. This isn't a whole bunch of kids that are running out to mob the girls' team. This is a, a little boy who is jumping up and down, and if you can see it, you can see his sister who's starting to walk to him. They're not even at center court. They're, they're right in one of these corners. My guess is that there were family members who were around immediately off the court that were taking pictures of this. I guess, would it have been the end of the world if you let them go out and, and do that? Rob in Oak Creek. Rob, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Yeah, I have two points, uh, which I heard I uh, have seen online. Number one, this girl and this little boy have been on the WIAA program. So this woman probably knew this was coming. And number two, this woman has sons that have played in the WIAA and has been in championship games. And she has walked on the court to graduate her mm-hmm. sons. So, I mean, what's the stand? I mean, it's good for her to do, but nobody else can do this? Um, interesting. I mean, interesting. Thanks. So here's Beth in Green Bay. Jeff, to add to the ridiculousness of the story, the Appleton North to Pier game was the last game of the night, so the arena was already emptying out after the game, and even more so after the award ceremony. This was after the award ceremony, and if you look at the video, it's kind of in a corner of the court. Like I say, this isn't a child that's walking the entire length of the court this is a child who comes a couple feet out on the court, and he's, you know, and and his, and his sister is is approaching him. Um, Beth writes, "There's absolutely no reason to prevent this little boy." Um, another one of our texts: pointy-headed bureaucrats with no common sense on a power trip. All right, then we have another unnamed one. Your ongoing hatred towards the WIAA is breathtaking. No, I don't ha- hate the WIA. I hate pointy-headed bureaucrats who don't have the common sense that God gave a goose. I hate this idea that. 
we're going to have this rules are rules mentality so we don't recognize the difference in situations we don't see it's the end of an award ceremony there's a three-year-old boy that's walking towards a couple feet out on the court towards his sister and the sister's walking towards him we don't recognize that there's a difference between that and a bunch of people who are getting to you know bum rush the court i mean why don't why don't you use a little bit of discretion i mean that's that's the bottom line behind this let's talk to um katie in burlington you're at 620 wtmj hi Hi. i guess the same standards that you just said could be said for the parents if the parents are told or the crowd is told in general to stay off the court till after the ceremonies are done it could have taken three seconds to scoop up the little three-year-old boy and say wait till your sister gets over here i mean it was if that's the standard they want to set and they don't want people on the court, then you tell the families to stay off the court, let your family members come to you. I don't know if that was made clear to them, and I haven't seen the video, mm-hmm. but I have to say if I've got a three-year-old little boy and his older brother's playing in a tournament and we're supposed to stay off the court, I'm not Okay, I'm going to let you go because I know how bad that is when you have to go. Well, I, I mean, I, I'm sure they say stay off, but it was all over. See, it's not like they walked out, the kid walked out in the middle of the game. It's not even like the kid walked out in the middle of the medal ceremony. The medal ceremony is over. The girls are stepping down from the riser. So it's all over. And yes, could could the, the daughter have, you know, had walked off and gotten a hug? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I get all that. And if you want to say to the parents, well, maybe they should have kept them on the sideline. Oh, okay, but... But apparently this is a this has never been a big deal in the past. And look, I don't think this was a thought out thing. This was the reaction of this bureaucrat who says, "Okay, I'm I'm going to stop people from." Essentially, the whole thing was over. It, it was all over. And again, the the kid is going out because he wants to hug his, his star girlfriend, his star sister. You can you can watch the video. You can decide for yourself. This is not a breathtaking hatred of the WIA. It is a hatred of stupid rules that are applied without any regard for situations. And I do find that the WIA, when it comes to pinheaded bureaucrats and insistence on rules are rules, the WIAA takes the cake on this. And this is another one of those examples, at least in my opinion. It's 1028, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Jeff Wagner, 620 WPMJ. Ice shoves continue to be a major problem around Lake Winnebago. Learn all about the ongoing dangers in the Wisconsin's morning news section at WTMJ.com. Okay, one final thought from our Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line on the WIA thing. Ron um, in Plymouth says, The WIA was justified in stopping the toddler from running onto the gym floor since there is a rule preventing such behavior. What if there had been five or ten small kids following shortly after? Well, number one, there wasn't. Okay, number one, there wasn't. Number two, I don't know, after the awards ceremony, it's in a corner. Would it really have been the end of the world if a couple of the other girls on the team, for example, had young siblings who actually wanted to walk two or three feet onto the court and get hugs, would that really have been the end of the world? Maybe maybe you should just consider using some discretion. I get the fact that you've got the rule. You don't want people storming the court. I'm a recovering attorney. I understand all the liability issues. But, my God, I mean, can't we use some common sense? And when you're dealing with the WIAA, the answer to that is almost always no. 
It's 1037, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's your chance to play legislator and address the annoyance, nuisance, or pet peeve in your life. <laughs> um, there, I don't know. All sorts of things just flash through my mind right there. There ought to be a loss. Scafidi and Billstead take your calls today at 207. Okay. I, I am old enough to remember, believe it or not, I am I, old enough to remember when we really, when, when kids made their own fun. I mean, during, when, when I was growing up, and maybe this makes me sound like a complete and total dinosaur, you know, when I was growing up during the summer, what, what, a lot of times we would make our, our own fun. By that I mean, yeah, mom would sign you up for swim lessons or for tennis lessons or for basketball camp or, or whatever. So there would be some structured activities. But as a general rule, when I was a kid growing up, um, I would get up in the morning, you'd get on your bicycle, and you'd go around to the, the neighborhood, and you'd go over to different friends' houses, and you'd, I don't know, you'd, sometimes, depending on the weather, maybe you'd play games, you'd play Monopoly, stuff like that. A lot of times, you'd just ride bikes. A lot of times, I lived, I grew up a few blocks away from Nicolay High School, and during the summer, they didn't use the athletic field, so we'd go over and we'd have pickup games of touch football or softball or whatever. You made your own fun, and... Maybe around lunchtime, you'd go home, you'd get a sandwich, then you'd go out again, and you'd do that, and you'd play until dinner time. I mean, that was you, you were able to do that. Now, I understand that it is a different time. I understand that, you know, we have to be more guarded. I get all those type of things, and I get that life is very, very structured. So now it's, it's play dates and all these specified type of things, and we have to occupy kids' time. I think that that's, in some respects, kind of unfortunate because the idea of, of using your imagination and making up the games and figuring out, okay, how are we going to have a pickup softball game when we've got like seven people? I, I think that, that that's just kind of the, the fun thing that, that goes with growing up. But I do understand that there's issues with people getting hurt and things like that, so you have to be careful. Now, just like we made our own fun when we were kids during the summer, I can also remember, well, in grade school, recess. I, I do. I remember recess. And what would happen is you'd have like the 15-minute recess, the bell would ring, and you would get to go out, and you would go on the playground. And you could play on the playground. Maybe you like to go down the slides, or you like to go on the swings. Um, but a lot of times, especially as you got a little bit older, the, the recess was you'd get together and you'd play dodgeball, or you'd play tetherball, or you, you'd play like a pickup basketball game for 10 minutes, or you'd play touch football, or, you know, whatever would be out there. But you'd just kind of interact, and you'd divide up the teams, and you'd play the, these different games. And sometimes, sometimes one of the games that you would play, and I hope you're sitting down for this, and if, if you're in the car and you're listening, maybe you want to just like pull over the side of the road because I do not want to shock you with this, but one of the games that people would play from time to time would be tag. You know, you know tag where... You're it, and if you're it, then you have to chase around the other people, and you have to tag them. You know that that's that that game that we have played forever. Tag. I bring this up because there is an elementary school, Gold Ridge Elementary School, in Folsom, California, which has now sent out an email banning tag and other games at recess. Gold Ridge Elementary School will no longer allow kids to play tag due to fears of injury and occasional alterations. Altercation, sorry. Students were instructed that physical contact 
including tag games, touch football, etc., were not allowed on the yard. This is a letter from the principal, a guy named David Frankel, writing to parents about a week ago. Um, he says, um, we are concerned that some of the kids were getting too rough, so we have decided to enact a rule saying no games where there is any contact at all. No tag, no touch football, no anything of the like, because, again, a couple kids touched people too hard when they were tagging them. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. All right? What do you think? Is this an appropriate response? Have we reached the point in America in 2017 where games that we all grew up playing on on the playground, games like tag or touch football or, you know, whatever other game that might have some incidental physical contact, do they now need to be banned at recess because, well, somebody could fall down or somebody could get touched too hard and get hurt? 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is this an example of, once again, trying to bubble-wrap children, or does this make sense? I mean, gee, some kid could fall. I, You know, I have, I have no doubt, as I think back on my days at recess, I have no doubt that there were probably, and I don't remember instances of this, but it probably happened, where, you know, on, on that playground, there were, I'm sure that there were some of my classmates who sustained, well, some injuries. I, I have no doubt that there were probably scraped knees or scraped elbows. There were probably situations where somebody tripped and fell and might have even needed stitches or, you know, maybe broke a wrist or something. I don't remember that, but it would probably happen. I mean, I... Again, if you're running around and you're jumping and you're playing and you're tagging people, you know, you can always fall down and hurt yourself, right? Is this a justification for eliminating the activities? We discuss next. It's 1043. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1047, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Let's start with Rick in Milwaukee. Rick, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. What, what do you think? We've now banned tag at various schools because... Well, somebody could get touched too hard, they could fall down, they could get hurt. Well, then what are you going to do? You're going to put elevators in the school? Because you might trip going up the steps. I, I, well, it, it, it is. Or, or what are you going to do? I mean, are, are we going to, right, are we not going to let kids carry books between classes because they might slip and fall or whatever? No, th- thanks for calling. I'm sorry, your cell phone was breaking up a little bit there. Pam, uh, on our text line, and again, you can... Not only call us to talk, and that's fun. It's a radio talk show, but also you can text us your thoughts, 414-799-1620. Pam says, I'm pretty sure tag has been banned in at least a few suburbs in Milwaukee. Um, we used to play oh, boy kiss girls or girls kiss boys on the playground. Now that is a scandal. All we did was run around and kiss a boy if we caught him. All the girls who were fast enough to actually catch the boys were pretty popular. Wonder how fast the boys were running. <laughs> uh, Catherine sends us a text. Dumbest thing ever. What an overreach. It's funny you brought this up because I recalled last night a game we used to play on the playground in grammar school called Crack the Whip. Yeah, I remember Crack the Whip. You line up in a row, hold hands, and then the leader starts to move and serpentine. The poor person at the end would just get, as the name suggests, whipped off the line. Oh, man, I laughed thinking about it. We had lots of scrapes, some broken bones, broken glasses. Yeah, I mean, it's look... 
that that's part of the thing about being a kid. You're going to you're going to fall down from from time to time. I mean, really, we're not going to let kids play touch football at recess. What are you going to allow them to do? Well, you can walk around the the yard, kind of like they do in prison camps and stuff. But but otherwise, you know, no physical activity at all. Mary in Mazamani. Mary, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. One of my uh, favorite memories is I broke my collarbone playing football with the neighborhood gang. I think I was about a 10 at the time. But what I also remember is besides the glorious exercise right. that we, we had, it also stretched us mentally as we explored our leadership skills, sure. as, as we uh, had to face conflict and resolve the conflict, as we picked teams and used mm-hmm. our judgment skills, all of that is being lost as well. Well, well right. And it, it's this whole idea that we have to bubble wrap people. And, and, and I mean, I, I understand, for example, if you play tag, there's some kids who are going to be it more often than others because there's some kids who are going to be able to run faster or whatever than the other kids. But so what? I mean, that, that that's all part of life is recognizing that, hey, there's going to be this interaction and there's going to be some people that are better than sport, at sports or whatever. But go on out and have fun. I mean, create these games. Use your imagination. You know, not these automatons that, well, you know, gee, if we let you run on the playground, you might fall down. Then then just cancel recess. Give it up. I mean, really. And, and how do we prepare these children for real life? when they are indeed going to face all of these things right. and have had no preparation. And it sounds like, Mary, you if you broke your collarbone playing, you know, t- touch football, you are a survivor, so you have the right to weigh in. You know, it, it, it's not the end of the world. Kids break bones. You don't want that to happen, but kids get scrapes. It's just part of growing up. Indeed. Um, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Let's see. Uh, uh, Carol, Nominee Falls, writes, Jeff, we must be of the same age. Growing up in Brookfield... We would go into the woods near us and build forts. Now my kids are um, 21 and 28, but my husband and I wanted to make our own fun for the children. I think banning games is going way too far. Kids will always have minor accidents, and this teaches children important social skills as well, just learning how to get along with others, and they get the exercise. I mean, yeah, it seems to me if you're going to ban touch football, you, you also have to ban... A playground basket. I mean, what what real? I mean, what team game can you allow people to play at recess? Um, have one of our, you know, I mean, what, what team game? Seriously, I mean, you know, basketball. Well, you know, there's going to be some interaction there. Could you go out? You know, if they had you know balls and bats, could you play? Could you play kickball, for example? That was a game we used to play at recess. You go out, you play kickball. Well, you throw the ball at people. That's one of the ways you get people out in kickball. I mean, could could you do that? Because there is the possibility. That, you know, something might happen on our text line, Ashley texts, and we wonder why childhood obesity is on the rise. Let's talk to Sandy in Milwaukee. Sandy, good morning. You're at 620 WTMJ. Well, good morning. I think I just um, will be echoing many of the comments. I, I said, you know, you, you watch the children when they play soccer. Oh, yeah. They're not exactly doing a ballet, <laughs> right. you know. They're they're out there and they mean business, right. and uh, the kids can get hurt there too. You know, I think the problem is if kids are just playing tag or doing games like that, people don't want that because it's not organized and it doesn't have a uniform. Uh, could be. You know, and look, and, and I understand, there there are always going to be, Sandy, you know, bullies on the playground. And I guess 
if if there were if there were one or two kids that were too rough that were using tag or touch football as a way to push other kids around and try to hurt kids or whatever instead of saying you can't play touch football to everybody i would whistle those one or two kids in and it can't be more than one or two i would whistle them in and you know you discipline them you you deal with if you've got one or two kids that can't behave properly okay you you deal with those one or two kids you just don't say we we can't have touch football anymore it's what what's the purpose of recess well, the biggest thing is that i think that uh, when you have just a couple kids like that that are out of line the rest of the kids will take care of them um right th- right there there is a little bit of self help um okay on our text line i remember it i this was second grade i remember this I remember this, too, um, uh, one of our text lines. When I was in grade school, girls and boys would flip up a girl's score, uh, skirt or dress. Um, can you imagine that today? That was running around at recess. Uh, no, I cannot imagine that today, but I do. I have a recollection of that when I was in second grade, of all places. Michelle in Eagle. Michelle, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi. Hi. Um, I thought that was the whole part of recess. It's so that these kids can go outside, run their energy off, and then come back in, come <laughs> down, and, you know, learn. Well, now, they would say, the administrators would say that, well, we're not, we're not banning them from exercise, from using energy, um, but we just don't want them playing games. <laughs> so I don't know exactly what the kids, you know. They're going to stand and look at each other. Yeah, right. Or, or I guess you can, like, run laps around the playground or something. Oh, but my guess not. is that... <laughs> like, then it seems like work. I mean, yeah. then the kids aren't going to do it. If it's not fun and a game, yeah. they're not going to want to do that. Well, I, 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 I get it. Yeah, I, 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 right, I get it. It's like, okay, we, we can't play... We can't play basketball because there might be contact. We can't play soccer. We can't play touch football. No. We probably can't be on the swings or the jungle gyms because you might fall off of those. So we, we can just kind of walk around like those movies you see with the people in the prison yards. We, we can do that. That'll be fun. <laughs> like The Walking Dead. Yeah, right. Thanks. <laughs> I mean, really. I mean, and yes, I fully acknowledge, and you can barrage me with the emails, that there is the potential that somebody somewhere can get hurt. But you know what? Kids have been getting hurt on playgrounds since before I was a kid getting hurt on playgrounds. And you know what? Somehow we all managed to survive. 1055, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Hey, coming up in less than 10 minutes, we're going to be talking to the brother of, well, his vic- his brother was one of the victims in one of Wisconsin's most notorious criminal cases. Um, it was solved. It was a cold case. Fascinating story. There's a new documentary coming out on it this week. We'll be talking to the brother of uh, one of the victims, so stick around. It's 11.07. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It is amazing. How modern forensics have changed the way we are able to identify people who commit crimes and bring them to justice. When, when I started out as a prosecutor back in the day, I can remember we, we would have you, you would bring in an FBI fingerprint expert, for example, and we would spend an hour having the expert explain to a jury the whole science of how you identify somebody by by their fingerprints. Well, I mean, it is just amazing to me how things have changed over the years, and especially with the advent of DNA testing, the ability of law enforcement to solve cases that previously could have been unsolvable. And as a result, you have a number of 
you have a number of what they call cold cases, which are cases where all right, a horrible crime, but they've been unsolved for years and years and sometimes decades. And ultimately, with technology, you are finally allowed to, finally able to bring the perpetrators to justice and maybe give surviving family members some sense of, of peace. One of the more notorious Wisconsin cold cases goes back to 1980 in Jefferson County, and it was the murder of of two 19-year-olds, Timothy Hack and and Kelly Drew, who disappeared after attending a a wedding reception at a place in the town of Concord in August of 1980. Um, Ultimately, their, their bodies were found in October of that year, and it... It took 30 years to ultimately bring their killer to justice, but but that happened. Um, there's a new documentary on A&E that's going to be coming out later on this week. Matter of fact, I think tomorrow. And we are joined now by the younger brother of Timothy Hack, the man who was murdered back in 1980. Uh, Pat, uh, Pat, good morning. Good morning, Jeff. Well, thanks thanks for joining us. Tell us tell us a little bit about your brother's story. Well, um, I heard a little bit of what you, you, you kind of put a little light on it there. Um, yeah, Tim and Kelly grew up in a small town, Wisconsin, Fort Atkinson. Um, high school sweethearts went to a wedding reception, uh, middle of the summer, uh, didn't show up at home the next morning, um, found out they had been, uh, abducted. They went missing. Right. Later in life, we, we found out there, they were abducted and, and, and murdered that, that night. Yeah, they, and apparently, from what I understand, you didn't. I mean, they, you didn't find this out. They they were missing from uh, early August to uh, like October. So it must have been just awful on 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 your family and on yep. uh, Kelly's family. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It was uh, it was a living hell. Um, we had a lot of support, you know, obviously through family and, and the community. You know, I, I think at the time it was the largest search that went on in the state of Wisconsin. You know, friends, family, um, and then uh, the uh, authorities. You know, we searched day and night there for a long time and yeah, three months went by and, and then the bodies were discovered. Um, you know, that, that obviously was a hard thing to deal with, but, uh, put it, put an end to the worry. Mm-hmm. And then, like you said, 29 years, we waited and hoped that maybe someday there'd be some closure. Um, it's not going to bring the kids back, but at least we'd have some closure and, uh, through hard work detectives and some DNA by God, they, you know, they solved it. Well, see, that one of the interesting things to me, Pat, is there's such a tendency, I think, sometimes just because after time goes by and time goes by, you can understand where law enforcement might just kind of throw up their hands and say, okay, this case is going to be permanently unsolved. But in in the case of your brother, they, they did, law enforcement did not let this rest. There was always this effort that we're going to try to find out what really happened here. Right, and they, and, and you're right, they, uh, as new detectives came to work at the force there, they had a chance, a new set of eyes looking at a case, and, uh, you know, and Chad Garcia was, was our, uh, he was our guy, you know, he, he solved it, and, um, but a lot of work, and, you know, many, many times in those 29 years did we get our hopes up, you know, you'd hear these stories, and, and as a family, you hang your, you hang your hat on every, every, um, hope that, but maybe this is the time they're going to solve it, and how many times our families went through that, and it ended up being at that end lead. And in this case, you know, they they had uh, some 
more than a gut feeling. And when, when they came and got DNA from family, from our family members to uh, to get the DNA from the suspect to defend, uh, you know, to tell the difference apart, whatever uh, right. word I'm looking for here. Well, that gave me great hope. And then when we got the phone call, you know, that, oh, my goodness, they got the guy. Um, you know, the emotions were endless. Yeah, now, and in the case, the, the murderer was ultimately to be determined. And this was, it was actually 2009, so almost 30 years after the the, the murders, um, the, the man was, what, Edward Edwards, is that his name, who turned out to right. be a serial killer? <laughs> right, yep, right. And who would have thunk that in small town Wisconsin that a serial killer is going to run across two innocent kids, and, and it happened. How many times do you say, you know, oh, we live in a safe rural area? I still believe we do. This was just wrong place, wrong time, and bad circumstance. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to this documentary that airs tomorrow night. Yeah. Yeah, Ed, Ed, Edwards, had, Edwards had been working as a handyman at the the, the place where the, where the wedding reception was held, correct. where your brother and his date went. Okay, got it. Yeah, correct, correct. Yeah. And and you know, and all that's going to be shown tomorrow night on this on the on the program. Um, uh, one thing that is very intriguing to a lot of people, I still have the car that Tim and Kelly drove that night, and that's. They use that. They did a lot of filming with that car on this documentary, mm-hmm. and uh, it's 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 cool. I mean, it's 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 cool to have that car and the story behind it. Right, so, right, right, right. So this, what time does the? Uh, how long? When were you kind? I assume that the folks at A and E reached out to you and asked you you to cooperate. When? How how long is this process? I mean, how long is this has this documentary been in the making? Uh, they contacted us first last July. And did some filming in the summertime, and uh, and then they came back in the fall and and did the rest of the filming. Uh, and you'll see in the documentary why they came two different times and did filming. Um, mm-hmm. One thing that I mean, I, I don't have a problem talking about Tim and Kelly and and what happened. Um, one thing that really got my attention last year, I found out that some of the teachers at the high school that Tim and Kelly went to have no idea what happened. Mm-hmm. They, they don't. They never heard of Tim and Kelly, and when I heard that, I guess I felt like, oh my goodness, yeah. they're they're getting forgotten. So, so then it's soon after that we got the phone call, and we've gotten several calls from several places that want to do a story or a book or a, you know a documentary, and and we've kind of shied away from most of them. But A and E and Cold Case Files is an old program. It's just. Um, like 10 years ago, they had several episodes, and it's been in a hyenas, and they rebooted it, and this is one of the first uh, in, this, in the new series. And we're, we're excited. You know, our family's excited to see how this is portrayed, and, and they, the, the people from A&E treated us fantastic while they were here the two times. So you haven't and, seen the documentary you know, yet either? No, okay. So. No, we haven't. No, and there's an underlying story. Tim, you know, Tim grew up farm kid and uh, it competed in the sport of tractor pulling all of his life. So the filming that they did in the summer um, that'll be on this documentary here uh, revolves around a tractor pulling event that our family gives an award in his honor every year at the Walworth County Fair. Okay. And they wanted to be here to film that and to capture that. And that was exciting. That was a big deal. So uh, that that's why they came in the summer filmed that part, came back in the fall, and, and visited with a lot of friends and family. And, and like I say, they were they were fantastic people to work with. So we're, we're kind of excited to see 
how it looks on, uh, on so the what what time when when does it first i mean on a and e they tend to show stuff a lot but it the first airing is going to be tomorrow Thir- evening thursday at what time nine o'clock thursday evening uh, it's my understanding the episode normally airs on monday night and they're doing this kind of as a special right. on thursday night so nine o'clock our time a and e and uh you know our well, well, Pat, I, I appreciate you reaching out. I appreciate you sharing the story. I Again, it's 1980 is a long time ago for a lot of people, and that's why maybe some people don't remember. But I, I, I vividly remember that that whole story. I was in law school at the time, and and I mean, you can never, you can never, you can never make victims whole and family members whole in these things. But I do think one of the one of the success stories is at least the. To the extent it gives you any closure, the fact that law enforcement was so diligent in using the technology that they have to, even though it takes 30 years, to try to bring somebody to justice. And the the, 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 the killer died in prison, right? 2011, right. is that? Okay. Yeah. So that's it. Yeah. Uh, Pat Hack, thanks so much for being with me this morning. And I know a lot of us will be tuned in tomorrow, Thursday night, 9 o'clock, uh, A&E Cold Case, to watch this story. Yep. Yep. Okay. Thanks, Jeff. So thanks for joining us. Um, I, again, it's just... The the way technology has changed over the years in, in criminal prosecutions and, and DNA and things like that and again this is uh, it's it's a tragic it's just it's a horrible horrible tragic situation but at least for the family members there maybe there's some degree of closure by being able to identify uh, the killer so um, Pat I, I've I've known about this case for a number of t- years and Pat reached out to me and said hey that they're they got a new show that's going to be coming on that's going to be documenting it and I, I know. I'm going to be watching it, and I encourage you to do it as well. It is 1121, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. And once again, this uh, 9 o'clock tomorrow night, the, the A&E's cold case will feature... Actually, one of the most notorious murders in, in Wisconsin history and give a little bit of background. And I, I know the reason Pat reached out is he just doesn't want his doesn't want his brother to be forgotten. So I was glad to give him the opportunity to discuss that. It's a business that many thought would disappear. But in reality, it's stronger than ever. Our very own Jane Matinaire tells you about the resurgence of travel agencies up now in the features tab of the WTMJ mobile app. Telling, talking about businesses that um Many think will disappear. It it's it's kind of a sign of the times. Uh, two days ago, the, the the company Gannett that owns the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, local newspaper. You know, for years and years and years, you had it was Journal Broadcast Group and the radio stations that I work for, together with our other radio properties across the country, as well as Channel Four and various TV properties across the country. You know, we we were all part of you know Journal. And you had the broadcast group, you had the newspaper division, and then ultimately what happened is there was a split a couple of years ago. We now, I, I work for Scripps, and Scripps is just, I don't say this, believe me, I don't say this because I have to, Scripps is just, it's a tremendous company to work for. I'm a huge fan of Scripps. And the Journal Sentinel now has been taken over by Gannett, which is a large newspaper chain. They, they put out USA Today, which is why if you look at the, if you look at the Journal Sentinel website, um, and if you look at the design of the paper, it's starting to more and more resemble USA Today. It's just it's just kind of the reality. And there, there's no question, and we've talked about this before, and it's this isn't about 
it's not about content and bias and things like that, but it's a tough time for newspapers nowadays. So the, the reality is that the way we consume information has changed dramatically over the last five or ten years. And just like cell phones are killing landlines and have led to the demise of phone booths. Hondo, you still remember phone booths. Tell me I'm not hopefully – you remember phone booths and – you remember phone booths and pay phones. You have actually used them. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it used to be that, for example, if you're, if you're in the airport and you want to call your wife or your significant other and let them know that you've arrived or whatever, you, you would go up to this thing that was hanging on the wall. It would be a phone, and there would be a line of these phones, and you would put your money in or you'd put your credit card or your calling card, and, and you do that. Well, nowadays, you can't find phone booths anymore. And you can't find pay phones anymore because everybody has cell phones. Well, in in the same way that cell phones put an end to phone booths and pay phones and more and more on a daily basis to landlines, I mean, the the Internet, I think, is is really – it's putting an end to print editions of newspapers. People still want the information. But, but they don't want the information once a day when it gets delivered to your doorstep. They, they, they just, they don't. And they don't want the information, they want the information as it's happening. You know, we, we live in this 24-7 type of environment, and, and that's, that's the pressures that the newspapers have. Plus, it's expensive to put together newspapers. It's not just the, the people that do it, but also it's the newsprint, and it's the paper, and it's the people that run the presses, and then it's the people that drive the trucks, and it's the people that deliver the papers. I mean, it is it is just a challenge, um, and especially given the fact that you have not only circulation that is generally decreasing in the print edition, but also, you know, because circulation is decreasing, ad revenue is decreasing as well. Think about what the classified ads in a newspaper used to look like 10 years ago well now now it, with, with craigslist and ebay and all that type of stuff now that that's just not how people get their information anymore and so you know newspapers are struggling but in any event in, in that vein uh the announcement yesterday that gannett says that it plans to close their milwaukee call center this spring uh, the call center is in the old newspaper building downtown. That's going to eliminate uh, 24 jobs. The work done at the Milwaukee Inbound Call Center is going to be handled by people in Louisville, Kentucky, and Greenville, South Carolina. So these jobs are going to be eliminated um, May 13th or sometime shortly thereafter. So, I mean, it's just another one of these examples of you, you knew this was inevitable, and again, I'm not going to criticize Gannett management. I'm certainly not going to criticize folks at the local journal center. I feel bad about the people who are losing their jobs, but this is just another one of these things. You've got the newspaper industry that is struggling. You've got this corporate takeover. And what is the word? Jobs become redundant. Why do we need 20 some people in Milwaukee to answer the phones when we can just farm it out to Louisville, Kentucky, or, you know, uh, wherever it is in South Carolina? So, um, it, it is Greenville, South Carolina. So, it's unfortunate, but it's kind of another blow to the local newspaper, or at least people who work for the local newspaper. It's 1126, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1135, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Just a couple housekeeping matters. Um, if you go to WTMJ.com, 
can go to either our main page or the Jeff Wagner Show page, and you can, you'll can you see links to a number of the different stories that we have discussed this morning. In addition, um, we have our podcast page, and uh, a lot of a lot of people are downloading those things. If you go to, it's just, it's WTMJ Mobile. You can download the podcasts of this show, and we've got links to all the different things, and I know a lot of folks do that, and that's, that's one of the ways that, for example, we were talking about the problem that the newspaper industry has with people wanting information when they want it, not just at 6.30 in the morning when the paper gets delivered. Well, I mean, one of the challenges to you know our industry is, hey, Jeff, I, I love the show, love to listen to it, but you know, I'm, I'm not, I can't listen from 8.30 till noon because I've, I'm doing other things. I'll catch 15 minutes in the car, I'll catch 30 minutes you know, here or there, but I, I'm, I'm doing stuff. Well, that's one of the things the podcast lets you check out the entire show and you can listen to it, you know, on on your time. We want to be as user friendly as possible. Now, let me just start out by saying this as a former federal employee. I mean, my first job out of law school was in the U.S. attorney's office. I worked for the U.S. attorney's office for going on 12 years. I am not someone who bashes federal employees. I'm not. Uh, my, my experience working for the federal government was that it was not unlike working, in many respects, it was not unlike working for in the private sector. You had really, really good employees, and you had some so-so employees, and you had some bad employees. But but that's, that is not unique. It's not I do not I do not subscribe to this idea that everybody that works for the federal government is lazy and sitting around and having coffee. That that's not true. I, I just I don't believe that. The big difference between, in my experience, between the federal government and private sector was that for the bad employees, it is almost impossible to get rid of them if they work for the federal government. And and that's and I, I, I have no position on how many bad employees there are, but I, I will tell you, I, I would see situations where in the private sector, if somebody wasn't performing, there, there's no question, they would just be called in and they would let be let go. You're an at-will employee, you're, you know, you're, you're just going to be let go. You're just not performing. That's not how it works in the federal government. You, you just can't get rid of somebody. There's all these different protections, and there's all you have to go through these job improvement programs and give people chance after chance after chance. And what happens is a lot of times people just get lost in the bureaucracy, and it, you, it, they get worn, you know, the management gets worn down trying to deal with the problem employees. So you get what they call, in the education system, you call it the dance of the lemons, it's so hard, for example, to get rid of teachers or, or school administrators that what happens is rather than getting rid of them, you just move them somewhere else. You, you get them. You, you, they're, they're such a problem. All right. Let's say my producer, Hondo, is absolutely outstanding. But let us say that I have I have a lemon as a producer and you're working for like a government entity and you go in and you say, my producer is just a lemon. They're not cutting this off. Well, okay, Jeff, don't you understand that it, but we, we can't just get rid of the guy or gal who's not performing. What we have to do is we have to start this process that will take two years and give them all these chances to improve, even though we all know that that's not going to change. You're just not cut out for that job. So what happens is you take, you say, okay, well, I, I, we can't do this. can't keep going on for two years. So what they do is they take the lemon and they assign them somewhere else. <laughs> you know, so you get the dance of the lemons. We bounce the lemons around. 
So that, to me, is the big difference between the private sector and the federal government. And I think I've never worked in state government, but government in general. It's very, very difficult to get rid of the underperforming employees, which, again, I'm not saying that there's more underperforming employees in in government work than there are in the private sector, just that in the private sector, somebody's not cutting the mustard, boom, you, you get rid of them. In government work, you, you don't. So one of the things that has happened, and it also has to do with in, entitlement programs, and this is one of the problems that Paul Ryan is dealing with as we try to deal with Obamacare. Once the federal government creates an entitlement program, then people get used to it, and you can never you can never roll that back because then oh it's just terrible people don't we couldn't you know, people forget that they got along before there was this entitlement program. The same thing is true with the size of government. That th- this idea that if you would ever cut jobs, the world is going to end. You know, you you take a couple people out of the park service, you re- you reduce. The, the number of people who work for the Park Service by 3%, oh, my God, that means every national park is going to have to close down. That, that is the problem that you deal with with, with government. Well, tomorrow, uh, President Trump is scheduled to he'll roll out his, his new budget. And one of the things that you are going to see is something that you have really never seen before, and that is that President Trump is going to be looking at a drastic cutback in the size of, of the federal government. Now, the federal budget, which is over 40 as in trillion dollars a year, there's a lot of that that can't be touched. It's the Social Security and, you know, Medicaid and Medicare and poverty assistance and interest payments. That, that can't be touched. There's not a lot you can do with that. President Trump has also said that he believes that the military has been run down over the last several years, and he wants to increase military spending given a number of the threats that we pose. But still, he overall wants to reduce the federal budget. So what does that mean? It means that there is going to be a cutback that's proposed in government agencies. And in some cases, I mean, you know, we won't know the final numbers. But for example, they're looking at reducing the HUD budget, that's housing and urban development, by, by about 14%. And, of course, you, you say that you're going to cut it by 14%, and already there's the, oh, my God, the sky is falling, people. That's going to be, you, you, you cut this budget, and that's going to put 8 million Americans in inner city and suburban communities at risk of losing their public housing. 4 million are going to lose their rental subsidy. It doesn't matter. Okay, they, they're looking at the Commerce Department. They're thinking about reducing the budget of the Commerce Department by about 18%, and the lines are, Oh my God! If if you reduce people in the in the commerce department, that's gonna we're not gonna have climate change research. It's going to eliminate climate change resource and research, and and global warming is just going to run rampant. One story after another about how if you reduce the federal budget at all and you cut any of these agencies, it is going to be devastating. Um, Trump and his advisors simply believe that the federal workforce is too big that the federal government spends and wastes too much money, and that the federal government has been largely untouched by the contractions that we have seen in the private sector over the course of the last decade, and now maybe it's time to reassess. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Trust me, once this new budget comes out, heads are going to be exploding. I pretty much guarantee that. 
But just in theory, is the federal gov is the federal government? You know, we've heard about how some of these banks are too big, big to fail. Do you think the federal government is really too big to cut? And if Donald Trump comes out with a proposal that is essentially across the board, on average, a 10% cut in the federal workforce, is that going to be something that's manageable, or is it going to be something that devastates this country? 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you're on the line, hold on. We discuss next. Eleven forty-seven. Jeff Wagner, six twenty. WTMJ. Okay, President Trump's going to be uh, rolling out his budget. I believe tomorrow there will be I, I, there will be across the boards reduction in the size of federal government. The federal government has been largely immune from job cuts uh, essentially forever, and Trump is about to end that. I, I think his belief, and he campaigned on this, was that the federal government is big. There's too much, too big. It spends too much money. There's too much waste. So I, I mean. I would not be surprised to see something that equals out to an across-the-board, say, 10% reduction in force. People are already screaming, my God, if you do this, if you reduce HUD, it's going to mean that you're going to have all these poor people, 8 million that are going to be, they're going to lose their housing, or, you know, we're not going to research, we're not going to be able to do anything with climate change if you reduce the Department of Commerce. I mean, is, is this chicken little screaming that the sky is falling? Let's talk to Michael in Waukesha. Michael, good morning. Good morning. What do you think? <laughs> well, a few years ago, we had a government shutdown, right? Right. And a lot of people were furloughed from the federal government. They still got paid, but right, they didn't yeah. come to work. I didn't notice any any nope. speed at all there. From The country just kept moving right along. Everything was fine. It seems to me we get by with a lot fewer people drawing a paycheck in D.C. Well, it, you know, exactly. And, and of course, what's always going to be ha- what's always going to happen is these agencies that want to protect their own interests, They if, if they're told they have to cut, instead of finding the, the dead wood sitting in an office somewhere, what they do is let's try to find the most visible thing they can do. Oh, we're going to close, we're going to close the Smithsonian or, or, or whatever, and, and so we'll make people feel it instead of getting rid of the, the bureaucrats that are three bureaucrats that are making like $150,000 that you can get rid of and nobody's going to miss it. That's right. Yeah, I mean, again, thanks. And look, and I, I'm not, I am not pushing for people to lose their jobs, all right? That is always an unfortunate situation. But the truth is, you know, the private sector goes through this and has been going through this all the time. You know, people are trying to figure out how to run leaner and, and meaner and, and how to get the job done with less. That is what responsible people do. You're always looking at ways to kind of save money. And th- this idea that once you get a federal job, it is an entitlement, and I'm not knocking federal employees, but this idea that the federal government, gee, in your workforce, you know, the company might have to get rid of 20% of the workforce and people figure out how to get the jobs done. The idea that that can't happen if it's federal employees, you know, that's that's nuts. Sam in McHenry. Sam, good morning. You're on 620 WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. What do you think? There's an easy way to do this. You, as a boss, you call in the head of a given department and you tell them, I'm going to give you a week to find 10%, 15%, whatever. You got a week. If you don't find it, you're out of a job. <laughs> They're going to find it real fast. Yep. Trust me. No, you're, you're right. Of course, of course. That, but that see, that's not the way it's going to play in the press. The way it plays in the press, and we've seen this in Wisconsin, is the agency heads all ask for a ton of money. They ask for a twenty percent increase, and then then it's then the story is. Oh, the budget's going to be busted. We don't have enough money to pay for all these wish lists. Because you know how this is going to get spun, Sam. 
and you and I'm glad you brought that up because that's the wrong way to handle it. You 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 just as the boss, you do this off the cuff. You invite somebody into your office when they least expect it, and you say, "Times are tough. We're doing things differently, and this is going to be put on your back, or you will be out of a job next week." Right. And you get it done before the press finds out about it, and it, it will get done. Right? Yeah. F- figure it. Cause, and, and the world is not going to end. I mean, again, the, the world is not going to end. Now, part of the problem when you try to take on the federal government is, again, you have all these entrenched bureaucrats and federal employees, and it's not just like in the private sector where you call somebody in one day, and, again, if assuming they're an at-will employee, it's different if they got a contract, but they're an at-will employee, you just simply say, hey, um, you know, we're, we're sorry, but, you know, you're two weeks, that that's it, because we're, we're eliminating this job, or we're downsizing, or... You know, we're sending your job, you know, your job in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. They're now going to answer the, the phone calls when people have problems with the paper. They're now going to answer them in Greenville, South Carolina. That's it's just it's just the way it goes. And the federal government should not be immune to that. Dave and Racine. Dave, you're at 620 WTMJ. Greetings. Uh, just a thought, you know, we could uh, a lot of the stuff can be eliminated. You know, budgets can be cut easily just by eliminating the uh Bureaucrat, the unelected, unaccountable bureaucratic uh, state. You know, we have uh, all these uh, that are actually performing left-wing advocacy instead of oh. doing the actual job that they're supposed to be HUD. Instead of suing municipalities, requiring that they put low-income housing in, you know, yeah. a million-dollar neighborhood, you know, million-dollar home neighborhood because they're trying to dilute uh, traditionalist uh, voting blocks. Oh, yeah. The uh, the transportation thing. Look at all these these worthless transportation things in California. Uh, the the folly trolley. Right. Uh, right. I mean, if you can eliminate a lot, and even just this uh, the uh, environmental stuff with the uh, uh, bio, the uh, mat, the uh, you know. Well, um, well, just look. I mean, thanks. Just look at the studies. Look at all the. Um, but look, it's just there. There is a lot of fat that is around, and the federal government hasn't been cut. Okay, on our, on our text line, I. I this is, of course, the problem that you're going to run into. Somebody texts me, just be aware, Jeff Wagner, a lot of vets are employed by the federal government, such as in the EPA, not to mention private contractors. So the idea is, okay, because they're a veteran, even, and look, I love veterans. Okay, but I mean, if the idea is, okay, if you're a veteran, even if you're doing a job that is redundant or a job that we don't need, well, you, you can't you can't have that job cut. Well, okay, we have to we have to be real. And we have to, again, try to have this discussion about, you know, is the job necessary? Do we have priorities? And is it not, is it unreasonable to expect the federal government to go through the same sort of thing that the, that, for example, the private sector has been doing under the last 10 years? So we will be revisiting this topic, I, I guarantee, because there's going to be all sorts of screaming when the budget comes out. I believe it's going to be rolled out tomorrow, but you're going to see the headlines. This, people are going to be, di- there's going to be death. You know, if, if, if we cut, if we cut HUD by 10%, my God, 10, 15, 20 million people are going to be without housing. Hmm. 1153, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. I want to share a text I got and Scafidi and Billstad all coming up. Stick around. It's 1157, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Eric Billstad, Steve Scafidi up next. You know, I've told you guys that one of, and, and you're, Steve, you will particularly find this out if you do this in the radio for any length of time, like I'm sure you will, is you have people that come up and share thoughts with you about what they think and about the show and stuff. And, it, you know, every once in a while you get the guy that comes up and says, 
yeah, I listen to you all the time, and I'll say, well, well, thanks, I appreciate it. And they say, well, don't thank me, I think you suck. And, 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 and it's not, and it's not I, I don't mind them telling me I suck, that's okay, but then they always want to tell you why. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's like, In okay, great detail. Right, 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 I don't need the detail. Thanks Constructive for, criticism. Right, yeah, well, th- th- thanks for listening, but again, but they, they listen, it's kind of like, okay, well, if there's stuff I don't, but, but so you, you get that side, and then... Then you get this. Okay, this is our text line and all, and this mm. is, Jeff, I really love your show because you always have great topics. Keep up the great work. A long-time listener from Sussex. So, yeah. see, so you're, you're getting that as well as the, like, crazy stalkers. All that comes in on the, <laughs> the, the text line. Yeah. Imagine yes. being Howard Stern. What oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Yesterday I got the don't, don't let Scafidi talk about sports uh, text. So, uh, <laughs> But I'm still going to talk about sports because I love sports. Of course. Just well, because I didn't agree doesn't mean I can't talk about it. Well, that, that's the other thing that you will find. A lot of times I'll get this, you've got your facts wrong. And, and I'll say, well, what facts do you have wrong? And what it typically means is they don't like the conclusion you draw from the facts. Mm, right. that's, what, that's what you'll find. Oh, okay. In any event... <laughs> What's uh, what you got coming up on the well, show? Well, we're, we're certainly going to talk about the story, non-story of the Trump tax returns. And I guess for me, the whole thing is, okay, the story was he paid $35 million in taxes, probably more than 99.9% of the population. What's the news there? Okay. Lots of buildup. Did, well, did you watch that 30 minutes on Rachel Maddow? I couldn't watch it. It was oh, so painful. I could watch it in a couple of minutes. I, well, you could tell that they had nothing. When, when she, and she's getting all sorts of heat, deservedly so. I mean, it's just, it's like you're going down this rabbit hole of every one of these liberal conspiracies, the Russian oligarchs and firing U.S. attorneys. And, and then, you know, after 20-some minutes, it's, okay, well, we have this, and he paid $35, 38000000 million, including payroll taxes, on $150 million. Okay. The Al Capone vault started trending. <laughs> right. It was Geraldo yeah. Rivera. Yeah. Absolutely. Was her, this, this was Rachel Maddow's, you know, Geraldo Rivera moment. So yeah, you lots, got that coming up. Yeah, lots going on today. All right. Stick around. Scafidi and Bill Stat coming up right after the news. I am back 830 tomorrow morning when we do this all again. Have a great Wednesday. It's 1159. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ.